You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show for lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction. Join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley and Darcy Fournier. In today's episode, we talk with Mary Keneally about her latest release, Forged in Love. Our Pinch of the Past looks at terms from the Old West, and our bookworm review features Premonition at Withers Farm by Jamie Jo Wright. Mary Keneally writes romantic comedies with cowboys and is celebrated for her fun, zany, action-packed style. She has sold more than 1.5 million books, including the Brothers in Arms series, Brides of Hope Mountain, High Sierra Sweethearts, Kincaid Brides, Trouble in Texas, Lassoed in Texas, and Sophie's Daughters. She lives on a ranch in eastern Nebraska with her very own romantic cowboy hero. Mary Keneally, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Uh, Well, thank you for having me, Kylie, and Darcy, too. It's wonderful to be on. I appreciate it. I'm excited to get to talking about this new book. You are known for writing lighthearted historical romance novels with many featuring cowboys in the West or farmers on the prairies. So what draws you to the historical genre? And if you were to write in any other genre, what do you think it might be? I wrote for 10 years before I got my first book published. And in those 10 years, I wrote everything. I wrote widely, mostly all romance, because that's just what I love, but contemporary, historical, suspense, and the cowboys are just what hit. And the, then when, when I got my first book contract, they said, what else have you got like this? Well, at the end of those 10 years of writing, I had 20 finished books on my computer. And I wow. said, wow. Yeah, I know. That's that's maybe obsessive compulsive disorder. I don't know. But it works for me as an author, so I don't try to cure myself. Anyway, so then I sent them, and they just wanted all the cowboy stuff. And my whole life, I've lived a rural life. My husband's a Nebraska cattleman. I just think maybe I bring an authenticity to that. So that's my best guess. I don't know. Or it just the time was right for it, but... Anyway, so that's what they wanted. And then they did what they call brand you. And I really am shocked to the extent to which I have been branded, but I love it. So I'm perfectly happy to keep writing about cowboys. So Yeah, that's wonderful. I am a huge fan. I've been reading your books for, gee, since my kids were just little. Yeah, very authentic. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Now, can you share a favorite classic movie or book that has influenced your writing? What I usually think is, I don't know if you've read the Black Stallion series, the Black Stallion books, but when I was a kid and I would, I was a big reader, my whole family were readers. Back then, we just barely had a TV. If you wanted to be entertained, you about had to read. And that's the first book I remember reading that was just in those horse races. I could feel it. I could hear it. And the first time I ever remember closing the book and thinking, who wrote this? It's Walter Farley. And I've just always remembered that, that his skill of just making you feel and hear and smell and everything. You're just right in those horse races and all the other stuff. And so that's something I try to bring because I just remember loving that, loving how he was able to do that for me. So I'd say he's a big influence. I I haven't read him again, 
I haven't read him for years. I'm scared to. I'm afraid they won't be that good, and I'll feel bad. <laughs> anyway, but he, I'd say he's a big influence. So That is cool. And so often it is those books that we read when we're young that stick with us and we remember. I like what you said about how he just pulls you right into the races. You're feeling the emotions. You're smelling the dirt. Everything is just so vivid. It was just amazing level of skill I felt like that he wrote with. And that's, I don't even hardly know why, but I aim for that in my own books so that people are feeling and hearing and smelling everything that I'm writing. And that's always my goal. Yes, yes. Take the readers on the adventure with you. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I read the the Kincaid Bride series. And now that you mention it, it was book, I think book three over the edge with the, there was one brother who (laughs) he was was a little crazy. crazy. Yeah, but in the start, in the, I think the opening scene of that book is when the heroine, the female protagonist, she was in like a really intense scene. I think they were in a stagecoach yeah, and she was out. shooting. Robbers, sure. Yeah, and aiming for some guy's silver hat band. And <laughs> I read that years ago when it first came out in 2012. And That was definitely a scene that was like all of those senses. It was like being there. I haven't picked up that book in 11 years and I can remember that. I always think there's a difference between reading something and sensing that your character you're reading about is angry. And then the difference is between being angry yourself. There's a depth there or being, you're sure they're scared, but the difference is you're scared or you're seeing them fall in love, but instead you're falling in love. So, and I think a lot of those emotions, you tap into those emotions through the senses. It's a way to really just take the reader deep into a book. Well, how do you personally juggle writing with all your other responsibilities in life? I will tell you, for one thing, I never began to write until my baby went to kindergarten. So I didn't really juggle. All of a sudden, I had a half a day, five days a week, free. And admittedly, I could have spent that time dusting. I certainly could have done a lot of other things. But so honestly, now at my point in life, I don't do a good job of juggling because like writing is my default. So it's like the family has come out from behind the computer. Mom, join the family. Come and talk to us. So it's easy for me to write. It's a little bit harder for me to deal with real life. That's my answer to that is that I don't do a good job of it. Oh, but my default writing. So I keep getting the books done. So there you go. (laughs) And I think just knowing as a parent, not even starting to write until kindergarten, and you already have that kind of private space, the time for writing and the time where there's family. Yeah, so it kind of lady, I can't remember her name, but she had an 18 month old and she was pregnant and she had gotten her first book published. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. Wow. I guess I should have started earlier, but I wouldn't have had it. never even occurred to me. So I didn't have any time. Bless her heart. But And I love what you said about how your family reminds you to come rejoin reality because I can be that way too when I'm like really into a story, whether that's reading or writing. And my sisters were always the ones that God gave me to be like, hello, Darcy, there's more going on. You need to interact with human beings. Come on out. Come on. Exactly. God's good gives us people like that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I'm good at being alone. I 
entertain myself very well for hours on end by just being gone into a book and again reading or writing and yeah I'm too good at it so I need people around me pressuring me to be a human being and deal with (laughs) other people yeah I think we all feel that way sometimes Yeah. Mary, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there is something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your reader? Something I'm kind of working with right now in the book that I'm on to the next series already writing it, but I've been thinking of the scriptures and the hymns and all of this that have What would they sound like if they didn't have Jesus in them? I'm looking at all these things saying, you know, about the blood of Christ and about dying to yourself and all these things. Because I'm dealing with a woman with mental health issues and it's like she's fixating on the wrong parts of the hymns that she's got stuck in her head. And part of bringing her out of that is say, yeah, but the next line is saying, Jesus paid it all. You don't have to do all that. Jesus was there for you. And I'm not really settled into what I'm doing there, but it's making me aware. I'm reading this scripture and these old hymns, and a lot of them have got some real dark things in them. And if you didn't have Jesus there for your sins and the saving power, and so I guess I'm just trying to get at, you need to take it all. You just need to be complete in in your understanding and not just dwell on a small part of it because the Bible is a big picture with a big story. And so I'm trying to teach her to come out of her dwelling on the negative and find out that the end answer is praise and joy and she just needs to get there. Anyway, I've really enjoyed what I've been focusing on with her character. and I like doing it. Yes, yes. Well, let's go ahead and dive into talking about your latest release, which is book one in a new series, Wyoming Sunrise. The book leading it off is called Forged in Love. When sparks began to fly, can a friendship cast in iron be shaped into something more? Mariah Stover is left for dead and with no memory when the Jedi gang robs the stagecoach she's riding in, killing both her father and brother. As she takes over her father's blacksmith shop and tries to move forward, she soon finds herself in jeopardy and wondering, does someone know she witnessed the robbery and is still alive? Handsome and polished Clint Roberts escaped to western Wyoming, leaving his painful memories behind. Hoping for a fresh start, he opens a diner where he creates fine dishes, but is met with harsh resistance from the townsfolk, who prefer to stick to their old ways. Clint and Mariah are drawn together by the trials they face in town, and Clint is determined to protect Mariah at all costs when danger descends upon her home. As threats pursue them from every side, will they survive to build a life forged in love? So we have a tragic stage robbery, uh, amnesia, and a love story set in a tough backwards town. It sounds like there is plenty of tension in this story, but we're also told from the back cover copy that Clint and Mariah are drawn together by the trials they face. So are there any elements or differences that keep them apart? One of the foundational topics of Forged in Love is, did you know that Wyoming was the first state in the union to give women the right to vote? Yes. It's just this Western state that is like a five to one men. So everything was run by men and they gave women the right to vote. 
So I'm trying to tell that story. That's, I guess, what we're talking about, Wyoming sunrise. It's just the beginning of a different way in the world. So I've got these three women in this three-book series who all are really working against female roles. So this woman blacksmith, which I just had so much fun making her a woman blacksmith, and nobody really approves. There's enough men who don't like it that women can't be blacksmiths at the same time. And then their next sentence is, but my wheel broke and she's it. There's no one else in town who knows how to do it. There's just this kind of tension in the town, like she shouldn't be doing that. And we desperately need her to do that. And then Clint is the diner cook, which that was acting against type with him being the cook. But he was from New York City and he was a chef and he was a really talented cook. And then there's a terrible fire and his whole family dies and he can't take it anymore. And he just can't, the town is just too sad for him. So he heads west and he finally just more out of survival than anything opens this diner. Well, he knows how to cook these really wonderful things. And I had a lot of fun looking up what recipes had eggs Benedict. Instead of scrambled eggs, he's making eggs Benedict. Instead of beef stew, he's making beef bourguignon. So Clint's against type and then Mariah's against type. And she's trying to respect the fact that he doesn't have calluses on his hands and he doesn't have thick muscles. That's what she sees as a man from her father and her brother. At the same time, he's really sweet to her and he really likes her. And he always knew he liked her. But when the stage horses come tearing into town without the stagecoach behind him, and he realizes something terrible has happened, that's when he realizes he will be devastated if something has happened to Mariah. So from that moment on, then they pretend she's dead because because these this stagecoach robbers never leave witnesses. And she was crushed underneath his stagecoach and they thought she was dead. Well, she's not dead. And now they're trying to kill her. So anyway, Clint's trying to keep her alive and she's trying to run this blacksmith in town. And and that's just the stress between the two of them is her learning to respect him for the strengths he has and not balance them against her father and how she really sees a man behaving. And it's interesting. I had a good time writing the book. Yes. Well, tell us a little bit about the blacksmith shop and how that would be different in historical times. There is a living history museum, if you're familiar with that term. That's at a fort that's close to me. And I went there and there's all these people doing all these jobs and they're for real. A guy who's the blacksmith is, uh, he's in there bending iron. It's really fun when you find something like that. And then you say, well, then this is what a blacksmith does. And you're like, wait, I've got follow-up questions. And they just act, really? You want to know more about what I do? Oh, I'm so excited. And I talked to that guy forever. And the rest of the museum, people are going by and they're stopping and they're kind of asking him questions. And I just had a wonderful time. And boy, he had, you know, what they do wrong with historical blacksmiths. And he was just so fun to talk to. I had a really fun time learning about historical blacksmithing. So, Well, that is the best way to do research, to find someone who has done all the book learning. And so now they're bringing it to life and they love sharing it. So I'm looking forward to seeing what details of that might have made it into this story. That sounds really cool. And speaking of, did you have any deleted scenes or ideas that you had to leave out of the book? Oh, I don't know. I think I cut way back on on the cooking 
because I had so much fun researching historically cool cooking, like Delmonico's restaurant in New York City existed back then and going through their old menus. And yet at some point you're like, okay, you need to stop (laughs) putting all these details in and just kind of get this going again. We need to get back to some action, not just how he makes hollandaise sauce. (laughs) Yeah, it can be so tempting to put too many details in there. It's probably best that you didn't know or else everyone would have just been hungry reading the book. We're probably going to be hungry anyway, since he's such a good (laughs) chef. But Well, what is next on your writing agenda? Well, this book, Bethany House Publishing, is now letting me write three books a year. So we're getting a whole series out in one year. So the first book is Forged in Love, and the second one is called Laws of Attraction, and that comes out in July. And this is actually kind of what kicked off my research, because I read this book of the woman who was the first justice of the peace in America, and she was in Wyoming. And if you go look into Wyoming history, they had the first senator, the first congressman, the first governor, the first, first, you know, everything, because they started so much earlier than everybody. And so then I thought, okay, I'm going to make a book where mine is the second justice of peace in America. And so that's book two is Laws of Attraction. And this is my most female of the three characters. She just wants to be a seamstress. That's all she wants to be. But her former husband, who's deceased, was a lawman. She knows how to question a witness. She knows how to examine a crime scene better than anybody else. So anyway, that's that was all a really fun one. Yeah, it sounds like a fun story. Yeah, she's she's just pretty and delicate and just surprisingly tough. So I had fun with her. Awesome. Well, for our listeners, Mary has graciously offered a copy of Forged in Love. To enter this giveaway, just check out our website, historicalbookroom.com and go to the giveaways tab. I'll also have a direct link to that giveaway in the show notes for this episode. And Mary, where can our listeners find out more about you? The main place would be my website. That's marykeneally.com. And I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Historical Bookworm Show. I really enjoyed chatting about this story. Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it getting out. And thanks for having me on, ladies. Now for a pinch of the past. On today's Pinch of the Past, we're looking at terms and phrases from the Old West, and I also looked up some great quotes to go with them. I wanted to start with something funny. So when a Texas cowboy was arrested for stealing horses, he pleaded not guilty at his trial. And then his lawyer managed to get him off. The judge set him free, and he started to leave the courtroom. Suddenly, he turned around and looked at the judge with a puzzlement before asking Judge, does this mean I can keep the horse? <laughs> I know. I was about to say, if you can't be tried twice and he'd already been acquitted, then, mm-hmm. <laughs> then he can confess all he wants now, I suppose. And then I grabbed just a couple kind of odd, funny terms here. We have catawampatagiously chawed up is completely demolished or utterly defeated. Um, anti-goggling means lopsided or askewed. Then kind of going more into historically like cowboy, we have sharps, which was a term used for any firearm manufactured by Christian Sharp. 
uh, for his Sharps Rifle Company. And this term was applied to professional gamblers as well, those that cheated at poker tables. Ah, that makes sense. You know, a Sharps was a good rifle. And then someone who was so good at poker because they cheated was called a Sharp. Oh, that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, eating irons for silverware, a rat trap is another term for um, a woman's bustle or corset. <laughs> and <laughs> I thought that one was funny. So the Railroad Bible is a deck of cards. Uh, this stemmed from the large number of card sharks working aboard railroads in the Old West. I hadn't heard that one before. <laughs> Yeah, Railroad Bible. <laughs> a slicker as, uh, was a term for a group of vigilantes who operated in Missouri in the 19th century to enforce their rules. They were known to whip offenders with hickory switches, which were known at the time in the Ozarks as a slicking. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, it sounds terrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, it does. The Palo Alto was a favorite hat during the California Gold Rush. It was a wide-brimmed hat made by John Stetson in about 1865. It was later called the Stetson or the John B. But its first term when it was marketed was an Apollo Alto? Yeah, Apollo. I never heard that. Like I'd heard I hadn't like either. Ten, yeah, I'd heard of the like Stetson and the 10-gallon hat, but I hadn't heard it referred to as the Apollo Alto. For a penny dreadful, this is a slang term for cheap, lurid, fictional magazine that incorporated the same kind of literature as a dime novel. Later generations would call them pulp fiction. Oh, I've heard them mentioned, I think, in either novels or Mm -hmm. literature, the penny dreadfuls. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I didn't realize there was a correlation between the Penny Dreadfuls or Dime Novels and Pulp Fiction, which is really cool. It is. It is how the terms evolve, so to speak. Mm-hmm. How yeah. the terms evolve. Another funny term is the Arizona Nightingale. Now, this was a term for a burrow. And I actually have a quote for this when a tombstone lawyer was pleading his case to a jury at Judge Wells Spicer's court and a burrow beneath the window started braying loudly. Lawyer Marcus A. Smith arose and said, if it please the court, I object to the two attorneys speaking at the same time. (laughs) So there's a not so sly insult. (laughs) Oh, that's so rude. Well done. Well done. Yeah. Moving on to a sort of a criminal element, the necktie social. This is a hanging or lynching, most often referred to in vigilante hangings. And we have a quote here by Blackjack Ketchum. Just before he was hanged at Clayton, New Mexico on April 26, 1901, he said, can't you hurry it up a bit? I hear they eat dinner in Hades at 12 sharp and I don't aim to be late. Wow. One terrible, I don't know. Situation all around. Yes, yes. Now, we know that ranchers were always very nice to farmers. And I looked up a couple terms. We have an alfalfa desperado is a cowboy term for a farmer, along with a churn twister, a sod buster, and mutton puncher for a sheep herder. 
Ah, yes. The cowboys and the sheep herders sort of competed for resources. Mm-hmm. So a, a mutton puncher makes sense. I'd heard sodbuster. I had not heard churn twister. But that yeah, makes sense because I. the farmers milked their cattle and the cowboys obviously did not. <laughs> yeah. So we have, oh, a mail order cowboy. This is a derogatory term used to chide a tenderfoot, an urban cowboy who arrives from the East all decked out in a fancy but hardly practical Western garb. A mail order cowboy. That's I hadn't a scream. heard that one either. Isn't that funny? Another insulting term, (laughs) the galvanized Yankee. This was a term used for former Confederate soldiers who served the U.S. Army in the West following the Civil War. Now, this also described Confederates who were captured by the U.S. and then signed up to be a federal soldier, but only on the frontier. Um, And this applied even during the war. Considering how many men were immigrants from different parts of Europe, And then being drafted into the Confederate Army, you know, signing up to be part of the U.S. Army on the frontier was probably just, you know, kind of making the best out of a bad situation, I'd imagine. Mm -hmm. Their loyalties may not have particularly lain in any direction. So, yeah, yeah, just go out and mine the frontier was a way to get out of all that Mm -hmm. tension in some ways. That, That would make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. And another Civil War term is the Free Soilers. These were people opposed to the expansion of slavery. The expression came from the Free Soil Party, which lasted from 1848 to 1854. According to my research, it eventually emerged into the Republican Party. The party was largely focused on the single issue of opposing the expansion of slavery into the Western territories of the United States. Yes, when there was the agreement that every time a state was formed in the West, you know, it would be free or the next one would be a slave state. So this party was very much opposed to any slave states being formed. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of a cool name, though. Yeah, yeah, it is. So um, next term, uh, crooked as a Virginia fence. I just like this one. It's a phrase that applies to anything very crooked and figuratively speaking to a person of stubborn nature. Oh, I love it. That's brilliant. So two more terms, the crowbar hotel, known as a jail, and a tra- <laughs> I thought that was funny. So from John Dillinger, several weeks before he bluffed his way out of the Lake County Jail in Crown Point, Indiana, said that a jail is just like a nutshell with a worm in it. The worm will always get out. Oh, Ouch. He's pretty confident there. <laughs> right? Honest about the kind of person he was, but very confident that he wasn't going to stay in jail. Yeah. And lastly, the dead man's hand. A card hand consisting of a pair of aces and a pair of eights. Wild Bill Hickok was holding this hand when he was shot dead by Jack McCall. Hence the phrase. 
Now, General George Custer, of all people, wrote about Wild Bill Hickok that he was a strange character. Add to his figure a costume blending the immaculate neatness of the dandy with the extravagant taste and style of a frontiersman. You have Wild Bill, the most famous scout on the plains. Interesting. Yeah, I was kind of like, when I saw Custer's name in there, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't know that he had necessarily met Hickok. It kind of makes sense with Bill Hickok being a scout. You know, he probably met a lot of influential people out West, but I don't know, kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking too. Now, I wanted to wrap up the show with what I think is a pretty good quote. I'm not sure if our listeners will agree that it's historic. However, the person who this quote is from was born in 1952, so a little bit older than my dad. And I think <laughs> I think in historical fiction, anything, what is it, pre... Pre-Vietnam. Pre-Vietnam? Mm-hmm. 60s, right? Oh, don't call me on okay, it. Okay, so it is pre-Vietnam and our country music fans will like this. It's, and my heart is sinking like a setting sun, setting over the things I wish I'd done. Oh, the last goodbyes, the hardest one to say, and this is where the cowboy rides away. George Strait. Time for our bookworm review. Today's Bookworm Review is brought to you by Angela Bell of the Historical Bookworm Review Team. Premonition at Weathers Farm by Jamie Jo Wright In 1910 Michigan, Perliette Van Hilton is a self-proclaimed rural healer, leaving the local doctor convinced she practices quackery. It doesn't help that her mother is a spiritualist who regularly offers her services to connect the living with their dearly departed. But when Perliette is targeted by a superstitious killer, she must rely on both the local doctor and an intriguing newcomer for assistance. In present day, Molly Wozniak's life has not gone the way she dreamed. Facing depression after several miscarriages, Molly is adapting to her husband's purchase of a peculiar old farmhouse. A search for a family tree pulls Molly deep into a century-old murder case and a web of deception, all made more mysterious by the disturbing shadows and sounds inside the farmhouse. Perliette fights for her life, and Molly seeks renewed purpose for hers as she uncovers the records of the dead. Will their voices be heard, or will time forever silence their truths? Hello, dearies. This is Angela Bell, bringing you today's Bookworm Review. You can connect with me on my website, authorangelabell.com. The Mistress of the Macabre is back and better than ever. If the premonition at Withers Farm doesn't secure Jamie Jo Wright her second Christie Award, I'll eat my hat. Okay, maybe not my hat because it's cute and vintage and straw seems rather tough to chew but I'd certainly throw said hat across the room in shock and dismay. Why, you ask? I shall tell you, dear reader. The premonition at Withers Farm showcases Wright's distinctive style and masterful storytelling at its best. Her atmospheric prose envelop the imagination, 
like an eerie mist, and within a few lines the reader is utterly lost in the story. The gothic tone conjures goosebumps at every turn, and the enthralling mystery makes it nigh on impossible to stop turning pages. Wright's characters feel like real, complex, vulnerable people, and she's not afraid to let them ask tough questions about life and faith. As a result, the spiritual themes of this novel are powerful, poignant, and boldly thought-provoking. If you're obsessed with true crime and love gothic fiction, you're sure to agree that The Premonition at Withers Farm is a haunting read. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.